0: Our scripture lesson today, if you'll remain standing with me uh, and read it with me, is from the Gospel of St. John. This is Jesus' prayer uh, for himself, for the disciples, and for you and me, for all who would hear it and receive it. Let's share in God's good word together. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that makes neighboring look fun, doesn't it? It's such a bouncy little song. I'm going to miss that. I'm, I just I have that in my head since we've been doing this for six weeks now. Uh, this is great. I'm going to miss it next week. I don't know what we're doing yet, but I'm going to miss that. Um, this will be great. So today we finish up our series and we're going to talk about being better together. Will you say better together with me? Better together. Do you believe that? Better together? Yeah, we're absolutely better together. Um, But I want to take us all the way back um, to what this entire series is based on, and that is the great commandment. Jesus, uh, when asked, um, what is the greatest commandment, he says this, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, with everything you have, and, say the last part with me, love your neighbor as yourself. Now this would have been shocking to the first hearers of this, because they knew Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Cold, and they knew the Shema, which was love the Lord your God. Uh, With all that you are. They knew that part. But when Jesus says, and he was adding to a core piece of their belief system, love your neighbor as yourself. His little brother James is going to go as far as to say, he who says he loves God and hates his neighbor is a liar. Can't do that. He says, and those who um, don't love their neighbor who they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. This is absolutely core to who we are as Christians, as people of faith. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. That's how you know if you love God, is if you're actually loving your neighbor. That's what it looks like. Now, but as we do this, we find out that you can't love in a hurry. Will you say that with me? You can't love in a hurry. You just can't. And so we ask ourselves the question at week two, do I live at a pace that allows me to be available to those around me? It's a really important question in our culture today, particularly in places um, like Edmund, where our folks work really hard and they're really smart and they do lots of good things. But if we're not careful, we will miss the people right around us, maybe the people most important to us, because we're just in a hurry. We have hurry sickness in our culture. Uh, The next week we looked at God uses the small things we bring and multiplies them into miracles. We looked at the uh, miracle of the 5,000 where there were lots and lots, thousands, maybe 15,000 people um, that were hungry. It was the end of the day. And this little boy, he simply had uh, five loaves and two fish. That was it. Not nearly enough to feed even the people right around him, but God takes that and he blesses that and he uses it. To bless the world. Now, in our, in our culture, we often think, well, yeah, if you do something good for God, God will bless you. But we miss the bigger part of the story. And that is, it wasn't just that the little boy was fed. It was that everybody around him was fed also. His obedience, his very small, tiny act of obedience, blessed thousands of people. And that's true in your life as well. When you say yes to God and you're obedient to the things that God asked you to do, thousands of people are blessed. Now, you won't know that this side of heaven more than likely, but there'll be a day when you look back and you go, wow, I had no idea. That small thing that God asked me to do changed all these people's lives for good. That's how God works. And then Brandon reminded me of something super important, and that is this, that if we can't receive, we can't be in relationship. Will you say that with me? If we can't receive, we can't be in relationship. It just is the case. You can, you can be a supervisor, you can be a manager, you can be lots of things, but you can't be in relationship. Real relationship requires both giving and receiving. Isn't that true? Now, you, you can't be in control when you receive. And so this is, this is a really important concept that, that we have to think about to really be in community with people, to be in a relationship. You have to be able to both give and receive. And as we get to know our neighbors, we find out that they're weird. They start, everybody's weird once you get to know them, and that's just the case. Uh, your neighbors think you're weird, it's okay. Um, and so the thing is, once you find out that you actually get to know people, you're like, wow, I'm going to need a good boundary around that. Uh, and it just is the case. Uh, you need good fences make good neighbors. That's what Robert Frost says, and he's right. And so you need to know where you stop and where you start, where your influence ends and where it begins, and you need to have a good boundary so that you can stay in relationship with people for a long time. Otherwise, you get into a relationship, it gets weird, and you ignore them. And it just gets, you know, and then you're just sort of in this weird sort of relationship with the people around you that you don't know what to do with. So you go and you hit your garage door, it goes up, you pull in, you hit it down, and you hope that nobody sees you. That's no way to live, friends. That's not a life. I'm not really sure what it is, but it's, it's certainly not the full abundant life that Jesus said that he came to bring to us. It brings to isolation and to mental illness and to depression. And so Jesus says, no, no, no. I don't, I don't want you to be isolated alone. I want you to be together. And I want you to be unified in that. So today we're going to finish the series by looking at Jesus' prayer for you and for me and for the world. It's in John 17, if you want to look at it again this afternoon. or uh, Really, this is just a, the core piece of who Jesus is. First of all, he prays for himself. Now, you might think that odd because perhaps uh, you've heard me talk about prayer. You've heard another pastor talk about prayer. And in that, you thought that perhaps someone said you shouldn't pray for yourself. That's not true. Absolutely pray for yourself. That's good. But if all your prayers start and end with you, that's a problem. It's not all about you. But part of it can be about you. So Jesus looks up to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. He's talking about that relationship. So that the son may glorify you in relationship. Since you have given him authority over all people. That's the case with Jesus. To give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Read this with me, friends. What is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, if you've grown up in the church a long time, you may have some different ideas about eternal life. I want you to see what God's word says about eternal life. If you're in relationship with God, and you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, the Father and Son are one, then you have eternal life. That's what eternal life is, and you can have it right now. You don't have to wait till tomorrow. You don't have to wait till after you're dead. You can have it this exact moment. But make no, no mistake, friends. It's not about ease of life. It's not about anything other than having a relationship with Jesus. That's what eternal life is, according to Jesus himself, to be in relationship with him. That is eternal life. So after Jesus prays for himself, he also prays for those closest to him. He prays for the disciples. He prays for a small group, the people that he lives with day in and day out. It would be like your immediate family or the people you're closest to in your community. He prays for them. He says, now I'm no longer in the world because he's he's about to go on, but they are in the world, the disciples, and I'm coming to you, he says. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be what? One. In the same way that we are one, he says. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Friends, there is an evil one. Jesus refers uh, very clearly about that, and he's praying for protection for his family and his friends. This is a great prayer. It's one that you probably know. Jesus' prayer is probably not unlike your prayer. God, help me with this, 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 and this. And bless my wife, bless my kids, bless those closest to me, and protect them. Protect them. Isn't that how we normally pray? That's how Jesus prays. There's nothing wrong with that. It's really great. But then he does something amazing. He prays for you and for me, for us. For people thousands of years in the future that can come to know him through the witness of those who have known him. And so, friends, Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. Think about that. It's passed on and passed on and passed on. And at any moment, if people don't pass it on, that's the end of it. So, Jesus says this. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. So that's you and me. Um, If you are a believer in Jesus Christ... This prayer is for you, that you would receive the word that you have received, maybe from a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa or a friend, uh, or maybe the very Spirit himself has interceded in your life and brought you here today. We don't know how, but if you receive Christ, you are an answer to Jesus' own prayer. So if you've been wondering whether or not you should give your life to Jesus, say yes, you'll actually be an answer. Did you know you can be an answer to Jesus' prayer? You actually have the ability and power to do that. He gives you the power to say yes to him and answer his prayer in the affirmative. Now, why does Jesus pray this? Why would he do this? So that the world may believe. He wants us to be one. He wants us to treat each other the way he treats us so that an unbelieving world will come to know him. When they look at what we do here at Acts 2, when they look at the wider church, when they look at the United Methodist Church, they say, wow, there's something different about them. That's unbelievable. I would never expect that from those people. I would want you to know, as of today, uh, you are a part of one of only two global denominations left in the world. The Roman Catholic Church is one. The United Methodist Church is the other. We're the only two churches that are connected, interdependent, share resources all the way around the world in that way. There are many other good denominations that are federated. They all kind of have their own independence. Um, But there's really only two of us that are completely interdependent now. And so Jesus prays this. He says, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. He's talking about their relationship, God always in community, never alone. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, depending on what we do and how we act, the world either does or doesn't believe that Jesus is real. Do you know that? And if you do a survey uh, about why people don't believe in Jesus, you know what their first answer is? Christians. Have you seen how those people act? They're terrible. They, they march and they tell people that God hates these people and God hates those people and God's mad at these people and God's mad at those people. Like, that, that can't, that doesn't sound right. There's actually a t-shirt I bought a friend of mine the other day that says, it's Jesus, because I didn't say that. Like, Jesus never said that. But people are more than happy, right, to put Jesus' name on all sorts of things because it gives them power. You have to be really careful with that. The world is looking, friends. The world is watching you. And if you're the only Bible, or you're the only Christian someone would ever meet, you have to wonder, would they come to faith? Would they look at your life? Is it a winsome witness in such a way that they go, yeah, I want that in my life. I'd love to be like that person. And that's what the Bible says, that we are to be witnesses. We are to, however we are, we are witnesses to the world. And, and his prayer for us, Jesus' prayer for us is that we would be completely what? One. Unified in our love and care for one another. So that, that's the really important part, right? So that what? What? The world may know. Well, what's the world supposed to know? That God actually sent Jesus and has loved them even as you have loved me. That's what Jesus says. That's his prayer. Now, some of you, um, since you probably grew up in Oklahoma like I did, we're fairly individualistic. Uh, We like to think of ourselves as rugged and, you know, kind of we can can do spirit. Uh, I've got a lot of that in me. But here's the thing. So when we hear this, we think, well, wait a minute. I don't want to lose my individuality or I don't, what does that mean? I don't want to have to dress like everybody else. I don't have to talk like everybody else. You don't have to. Because, friends, unity is not the same as uniformity. Will you say that with me? Unity is not the same as uniformity. Very different. Now, there is a beauty to uniformity, friends. I mean, I will give it to you. I love uniformity. You look at a good military band or a great band or a marching drum and bugle corps, and everybody's uniform is exactly the same, and their plume is exactly tilted the exact same way. And when you see that, and, and people have worked so hard to make something uniform, it can be really compelling. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about unity. And this is important that you know this. Unity actually requires diversity because otherwise you just have uniformity. You actually have to have divergent pieces in order for you to unify around something greater than yourself. So unity actually requires diversity. And that's one of the dangers of the American church is that we often look very much alike. And we can fall for uniformity that doesn't have near the power as unity. So God calls us to unity. Jesus calls us to unity. Every tribe, every nation, every race, every background. That's why we do that in our membership vows. Every time you see someone join here. This is open to people of all ages, nations, and races every time. So how we love one another, friends, is our witness to the world. Will you say that with me? How we love one another is our witness to the world. It is. You are a witness. You simply are. Now, what kind of witness is up to you? But you are a witness. You can't help it. Every single one of us is a witness to the people around us. And I want to share with you the power of Of unity, the power of oneness, the power of how we come together under the vision of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In a very secular way, there's a composer, an American composer named Eric Whitaker, and he started a project um, where he would send music and music tracks to people all around the world. They could simply go online, they could click and download um, the music track, and then they could read the music, and they could sing whatever part they wanted to sing. The first time he did it, he had about 100 or so people do it. The next time he had a few thousand. Uh, This is the third iteration that I'm going to show you of what he's done. There were 3,746 singers from all around the world, from 73 different countries. He's done a few more that now has more than 101 countries and more than 8,000 singers. But I want you to see the power of a vision. You might even say the power of a prayer. That people from all around the world would become one that they would come together it looks a little bit like this. Singers from places like Iran and Syria risk their lives to submit to be a part of something that they could never be a part of in their home country. Places like New Zealand and the Congo and Africa. Children as young as six. Old men as old as ninety-eight. Imagine a day where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess and every voice sing to the glory of God, the father and his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. It's coming. Just a glimpse of the course that you could be a part of. To the glory of God. This is absolutely beautiful. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, yeah, but you don't know my neighbors. My neighbors are terrible. Matter of fact, my neighbors, I don't even like them. They're my enemies. Don't worry about it. Jesus has that covered too. He's taught us about how to love everyone. And, and, and he's with us in the struggle until we get to those moments of glory and beauty and unity and harmony. You see, Jesus instructed us to love our neighbors, all of them. <laughs> really, this is the hard part. All of them. Will you say that with me? All of them. Not some of them. All of them. And in my more than 20 years of ministry now, I, I wanted to submit to you that at least in our particular context and culture, it's harder than it was when I started ministry. For sure, it just is. And let me, let me show you why in our context. This isn't necessarily true globally, but it's true around here. In 1994, according to Pew Research... Um, the median Democrat and the median Republican were not very far apart. The way we thought, the way we tried to engage the culture, the, the sort of social policies that we had, the way we lived our lives, were very, very similar. And there was this huge mammoth purple piece here where most folks agreed on most things. And, and you could go to church and people could kind of just like, yeah, that's what we do, this is how we do it. But that's not the case anymore. You see how close these are right here in 1994. 1994. Uh, When I went to seminary. And I began to learn how to do what we do. How to talk to people about the kingdom of God. And there was this sort of unity of spirit and of thought about how we do that. Today, it's quite different. It's really hard to talk to people now. They don't want to listen. And you can see that the, the Democrats have moved wildly left. And the Republicans have moved widely right. And the amount of things that the world in America agree on is much smaller. And the people who are consistently liberal are wildly higher. And the people who are consistently conservative, wildly higher than in 1994. And this is where we find ourselves. And it's in this culture that Jesus' words, that we are to love our neighbors, all of them becomes much more weighty, much more important Because what Jesus is saying is that you're supposed to love the Democrats. And you're supposed to love the Republicans. And you're supposed to love the independents. This will blow your mind. You're even supposed to love those people who didn't vote. You're supposed to love them all. And it's getting harder to figure out those commonplaces. And friends, it is not possible without having something higher than your ideology... In Christianity, Jesus is master of all and Lord of all or master of none. He doesn't leave anything else up to us. He's either our Savior and Master and Lord or nothing. And so when we gather here and when we live out our faith, we cannot put our ideology above Jesus. Jesus has to be above that or the world itself is at peril. The only way that the world survives is by having God as the center and our ideology underneath him, under his banner. Now, what you might say is, well... If you were like me, you grew up uh, in a family that you didn't want to offend. Uh, you didn't really want to engage people. And as I grew up as a public figure my whole life. My dad was a pastor. And so every town we moved into, everybody knew me. I didn't know them. They knew me from day one because dad was the pastor of First United Methodist Church of wherever we lived. And when people would sort of come at us for this, that, or the other, my mother, being a, a wonderful southern woman from Dothan, Alabama, would basically say this. Ignore them. Just ignore them. You know, you don't, you don't need to engage with that. And, you know, and at five, maybe, maybe that's a decent argument. But it doesn't work at 50, I'll tell you. It just doesn't. Because ignoring is not loving. You can't be in a relationship with people that you ignore. And, and actually, sociologists and child psychologists will tell you that to ignore a child is the very worst thing you can do to them. To not acknowledge their personhood. That they are an image of God themselves. And oftentimes, well-meaning people, well-meaning friends, maybe Sunday school teachers will say things like, well, just pretend it didn't happen, or they didn't mean it. Well, friends, sometimes they do mean it, and certainly it does happen, and forgiveness is the only answer that we have. But in church, we we struggle now that we have many churches, lots of different places. Things don't go your way. Uh, You don't forgive or be forgiven. You just float around to different places. It happens all the time. C.S. Lewis has some really important instruction about this. He says, uh, he describes this difference between what he calls excusing and forgiving. And I think it's important that we look at this. He says, I find that when I think I'm asking God to forgive me, I'm often asking God to do something quite different, quite different. I'm asking God not to forgive me, but to excuse me. But there's all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing, he writes. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept Your apology, I will never hold it against you, and everything between us will be exactly as it was before. He says, but excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it, or you really didn't mean it, or you weren't really to blame. Now, friends, let's pay attention here. If one is not really to blame, then there's nothing to forgive. And what we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses, which are many Friends, there's no, no power in excuses. There's all the world power in forgiveness and the cross. So in your sermon notes, it looks like this. Excusing is that I see that you couldn't help, it; you weren't really to blame. There's no power there. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology, and I will never hold it against you. I'm not going to hold it against you. We can be in real relationship. We really can. So when it comes to this unity thing, this is Really important because to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us, hasn't he? That's the whole point of the cross and the atonement and the redemption. It's not that you weren't that bad and you're just sprinkling some Jesus on your life. It's that we at our core at times can be terrible and we need to be saved. That is the good news of the resurrection is that all can be saved, even the worst of us, the worst piece of all of us. And this unity then demands forgiveness. It really demands forgiveness. It's not optional. Because if you stay in relationship with someone long enough, you'll have to be forgiven. And so will they. So what does the Bible say about being a good neighbor? About really being a good neighbor? Well, Paul writes to the early church. He does this from Rome. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Yeah, really, to strangers, he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So if we were to boil this down, it simply looks like this. Rejoice, be patient in hard times. And then, friends, what's the key word there? Pray. Because we don't have the power to live this out unless we are engaged in the power of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's in that power that we help and contribute to the needs of the saints and we welcome strangers. We live in harmony with one another. We're not to be haughty. We associate with who? The lowly. And we don't claim to be wiser than you are. I don't know about you, but to me, this seems really countercultural. If you go to business school, this is the opposite of the sorts of things you're supposed to do. Right? You're supposed to eat or be eaten, associate with the best people around, and uh, tell people what you've learned so that you can move up and move up quickly. Jesus weighs a different way. And then he says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Not one, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all, because it's about your character, friends, your character in Christ, his identity living in you, and the world is watching. And if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, will you read that with me? So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, friends, I know that you can't live peaceably with everyone, and Jesus knows it too. That's why he says, so far as it depends on you. When it comes to you, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then Paul finishes it up like this. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. It's God's to-do. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. Good. We bless those who persecute us. So if your enemy is hungry, feed them. Because we are people, our master says, to be people who overcome evil with good. That's who we are. And when we do that, the world believes that Jesus is alive. Because they don't see it anywhere else. don't see it anywhere else. Now, so that we make sure that we have healthy, strong, and safe boundaries, I need to make this point very quickly. And that is that forgiveness is offered to everyone, but not all are reconciled. You can't reconcile with everybody, but you can forgive Everybody. Jesus forgave the entire world. Not everyone is reconciled to him. The other people have choice about that. And so particularly when we're talking to our young people, um, I want to make sure that I'm being super clear here. Not everybody you come in contact with, you can be reconciled to. They have their own free will. You have your own free will. But we can forgive and be free, untied from the pain of that relationship. You see, forgiveness is an attitude of heart in relationship. The problem that I see in most places, most families, most churches, is that we don't forgive, and we think we're reconciled. And then what you have are two people that don't, they're really hurting, and they come together anyway, and it's a mess. It's disdain, it's heartache, it's brokenness, it's just making it through, it's just not a life. But the forgiveness hasn't happened, friends. And if the forgiveness hasn't happened, you can't be reconciled. Not truly. And we're not supposed to fake it. So we forgive first, and then perhaps we can be reconciled. But the forgiveness, friends, must come first. It just has to. Because if it doesn't, you can't be in relationship. Reconciliation, then, is the hard work of how we go forward together. It's not easy. It requires forgiveness first, and then really good boundaries as we go. How are we going to live this out together? So that's what the early church was taught uh, by Jesus through Paul. But what did Jesus say himself in Luke? Well, I want you to see how Jesus did this as he actually lived this out. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Really, 70. Uh, He he worked with his 12, and then he sent them out in twos. um, And he sent them out in pairs, or twos, to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friend, there's there's always going to be people that don't know Jesus. And it's always our job to help love people into the kingdom. But we never, I mean never, do ministry alone. Will you say that with me? Never do ministry alone. Not once. And I mean this with all my heart. Around here, uh, this is one of the very core behaviors that we have as a staff. And we hope that it's a core belief and and behavior of our people. If you uh, follow preachers at all, like I have, uh, because I was going to be one and now I am one. What you'll find over time is that some really high profile people have what's considered or, or reported to be a moral failure. And their lives... Their life's work, um, their churches often fall apart over one or two indiscretions over time. But I, I will submit this to you. In every case that I've studied over the 22 years of my ministry, it has always happened when that person was alone. When they became isolated, they became overtired, they self-soothed and played in ways that were not culturally acceptable, and they lost it all because they were alone. I've not seen one time, uh, not one report... Uh, of any leader, of any group or culture that got together with a group of people they were accountable to, that they were fasting, they were praying, they were studying the scriptures, and all of a sudden they found themselves in in the weeds. Does it make sense? You just don't see that. And so it's by the community, it's by the unity that God wants to bless us and keep us safe and keep us healthy and joyful. So never do ministry alone, friends. Jesus had a team of 12, and he always sent them out. How? In twos, in pairs. And I want you to know how incredibly blessed you are uh, to have Chantel uh, as a part of our family life together. Because most of the time when I do ministry, I do it with her. She does her normal work here at the church and then she does my work with me if I am to go on someplace. Uh, Many of you who have been either at the birth of your child or in the hospital visit uh, or a critical time or the loss of a family, you know that when I show up to your house, I show up with her. It's a great blessing. Thank you, honey. And when she can't do that, I call Brandon, or I call Andy, or I call another person of staff, or I might call you, or I might call Carolyn, and I say, hey, we need to go do ministry together because we don't do ministry how? Alone. Because it's dangerous, and it's bad, and it's a bad witness. Right? You don't want to be a part of an organization where only one person cares. We never do ministry alone. And so as an action step, friends, I want to invite you to walk around your block, really, with a friend. And ask God to give you a vision, a vision, a prayer for what Jesus wants your neighborhood to look like. Just think about that. What would your neighborhood look like if Jesus was in charge? The joy and the peace and the fellowship and the fun that would happen around your neighborhood, the relationships that would be restored. Secondly, then I want to encourage a friend, I want you to ask a friend to take the great commandment to love God and love others, love your neighbors yourself seriously, to really do it. And to reach out to their neighbors with you. Now, I'm going to say something the book said. I don't know that I would be bold enough to say this on my own, but since they said it, I'll repeat it. They said, if you look at your calendar and you don't have time to walk around your neighborhood or you don't have time to ask a friend to take the great commandment seriously with you, they said this. They said, is everything on your calendar more important than following Jesus? Because this is his first and greatest commandment. And I thought, dang, that's right. I could never say that, of course, but it's right. Is everything on our calendar more important than actually doing what Jesus asked us to do? He says, for that neighbor on your last nerve, ask what's the most loving thing I can do for this person? And then do it, really do it. And we all have that person. There are people that we just don't get along with, we just don't gel with. It's, you know, it's hard to be in a relationship with them. Well, think about them and do something loving for them. It might actually change their life. And it might change the relationship that you have with other people who are watching your life. Because they'll ask you about it. They're like, Really? I thought you didn't like them. You're like, I don't. But Jesus does. I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to be a good neighbor. And so, as we finish this entire series, I want to end uh, with this question Won't you be my neighbor? Fred Rogers uh, was a staple in my life. He was a Presbyterian minister and a swimmer. Um, and as someone who grew up in a pastor's home, um, I was really interested in Fred's life and his wife and his, his kids. And so I, I followed him closely. And I watched him religiously uh, as a little one growing up. Uh, Chantel and I went to uh, the movie on his life uh, two weekends ago, and it was really powerful. I recommend it to you. I want to show you just a little bit of it. A television program for children made its unauspicious debut on station WQED in Pittsburgh. Its host, Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers? Yeah? I want to tell you something. What would you like to know? I like you. I like you, my dear. Thank you very much for telling me that. If you take all of the elements that make good television and do the exact opposite, you have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Low production values, simple set, unlikely star, yet... It worked. Hello. I've always felt that I didn't need to put on a funny hat or jump through the hoop to have a relationship with a child. He was always trying to get a message across in every show. A week on death. What does assassination mean? A divorce. Some people get married, and after a while, they're so unhappy that they don't want to be married anymore. He was radical. I know everyone says that, but he was radical. They didn't want black people to come and swim in their swimming pools. My being on the program was a statement for Fred. A neighborhood was a place where at times that you felt worried, scared, unsafe, would take care of you. He had a singular vision of kindness and love. Love is at the root of everything. All learning, all relationships, love or the lack of it. Children have very deep feelings, just the way everybody does. There must be times when you do feel blue. I'm not feeling blue right now, though. Me neither. (laughs) Won't you be my neighbor? Well, I suppose it's an invitation. It's an invitation for somebody to be close to you. The greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and capable of loving. Won't you please, won't you please, please won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? We invite other people to be your neighbor. It takes some boldness to actually ask the question. And just so you don't think that I've lost my mind, um, the movie ended at the end of Fred's life uh, amid protest, people with placards saying that he had ruined America, that he was too kind to people, that he didn't expect enough of them, that he wasn't mean enough, he wasn't harsh enough, he didn't drive people enough. And they protested the man that simply said that you are loved and worthy of love because you're created in the image of God, which is our story, by the way. So I know that this will take some holy boldness on your part. But be unafraid, for the Lord is with you, for we are one. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are with us and that your call for us to be one, as you and the Father and the Spirit are one, is a reality that we can live into. We pray for your eyes, for your vision, to lead us forward in a great and wonderful new reality where you are the head and we follow into your glorious future, in harmony with one another, and in love and service to the world. And we pray that you would bring your kingdom here, and that you would help us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom